And now open your Bibles to the gospel according to Luke. Something special in this passage that the Lord gave me this week, and I don't often say that, but this is something special. This has been a very difficult week um, for a number of us. We had a prayer walk on Thursday night here in Deerfield Beach, and that prayer walk was along the tracks from 10th all the way to Hillsboro, where two high school students have committed suicide in the last few weeks. And uh, known by those in the community, professing believers, love the Lord, and um, just walked in front of the train. And so we walked the track, and uh, we prayed, and the pastors were here. Joe Miller was there with me, and uh, we walked and we prayed, and um, asking God to, to, to do a, a special work. The world is after all of us, but in particular our kids. And uh, even those kids who are in the church and, and know Jesus and love Jesus, when we get to the end of the sermon today, you'll see something that I think will speak to your heart. And we had our own personal tragedy in this church with, um, with the loss of a 13-year-old this week. So it's, it's, it's hard. It's difficult for these families. But there's something that, that we have that no other religion has, no other worldview has. It's called a living hope. And we're going to get to that at the very end. And I think it's something that God really laid on my heart this week, and I rarely say that, for, for tying this whole message together, okay? Peter's denial predicted, strange title and passage to think we'll find this living hope, but we'll find it, okay? Or really, we could call it from trial to triumph. Hear now the word of God. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back. Strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant fallible word. Let's pray. Father, it's no accident we're here this morning, everyone by divine appointment, which means you have something to speak into each heart. No one came through this door this morning without carrying some kind of burden. That we know. Some unimaginable burdens. Meet us in our deepest place of need, but not as we prescribe those needs, but rather as you do, for you know exactly what we need and how to minister deeply to our hearts. Make it a word of salvation for the unsaved, comfort for those in storm winds, and rest for the tired, weary, and heavy laden. All things to all people. Give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. Come, now fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus and him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Three headings, real simply. And we'll roll right through until we get to the end. Okay? Number one, the Savior's prophecy. See the sovereignty of God again over and over and over and over and over again. And then the responsibility of, of us. Human responsibility, God's sovereignty. Simon's sinful pride, and keep this in mind when we come to the passages in Scripture, the narratives that we read, and we read the stories. You want to see where your story intersects with God's story in the passage. So you ask a couple key questions. One in particular, who am I in the story? Just, it's, it's important to remind you sometimes, because we can all forget, me in particular. You're never Jesus. In this story, we're all Simon. Okay? Keep that in mind. It's important that we see this. And finally, at the end, we're going to come out with an incredible promise. All right? Ready? Head out into some deep water. 
let our nets down for a catch. Number one, the Savior's prophecy. 22, 31, and then we're going to skip to 34. What does is, what is Jesus know that Peter doesn't know yet? Jesus knows all things in his Godhead. He is omniscient. And he's going to say something here to Peter. And he's, and he's working on Peter's heart. He's teaching Peter. You're trusting and relying too much in yourself. And I'm going to show you something here, Peter, because you're going to need to learn how to trust and rely in me. Because real tragedy, real suffering is going to come. Simon, Simon. Notice he doesn't say Peter, Peter. Peter means the rock. There's no rock here. Not yet. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you. It's important for you to see this because often we come to the scriptures and we say, okay, what does that mean to me today? What difference does it make 2,000 years later? You know who that you is? It's not just Peter. It's a plural you. It's not just the disciples. It's a plural you. It's you. 2,000 years later, Satan has asked to sift you and you and you as wheat. Let's make that perfectly clear. But let's back up. He must do what? Ask permission. You hear the echo from Job? God and Satan are having some kind of conversation. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what, what's going But they're having some kind of conversation. And they're talking through this. And Satan comes and asks God about his servant Job. Well, Satan's talking now to Jesus about Peter. And all of them. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you something. You think they love you and you think they, they're strong and you think that they're going to build your church. I'm going to show you just how weak they are. And Jesus knows all that. So now Jesus goes in verse 34, what's he say? I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. It's hard to believe, but that's what's coming. Let's take a look at the word sift. Sinyazo is the Greek word sift, but we need a better picture. It means violent, intense shaking. It's the separating the wheat kernels from the debris, which means what? All the bad stuff is going to go away and all the good stuff, only good stuff is going to be left. You are being refined in the furnace of affliction. You're being hammered out on the anvil of affliction, yes? Because God is doing what? What is he doing in your life? He's getting rid of you. Steve Brown would say, God is bringing you to the end of yourself. And I add, and the sooner the better. You're, you're good with you? If you are, tell me what you're doing, because I'm not good with me. I'm a mess. And I know some of you personally, you're a mess too. God is bringing you to the end of yourself. What, what, did, John, what did John say? He must increase and I must what? I got to get out of the way. I'm messing this thing up. Paul in Romans 7, I don't do what I want to do. I know what I'm supposed to do. I know the commands of God. I know that but I do the things I abhor. Why? I'm still a sinner in need of a Savior every moment after I've been saved. 
We think we get to some kind of place where we, we want to know one of the things that troubles me the most. I'll be in a group, right, maybe we're doing a Bible study, we're in a group, we're talking to some of the men, or I'm, I'm working with a family, I'm talking, we're doing counseling, coaching, whatever you want to call it. And I'll hear this. Oh, that's at least one sin I know I could never commit. Let me make something perfectly clear. There's nothing, nothing that you cannot do in the right set of certain, nothing. That's how wicked and evil and sinful the heart is. Apart from the restraining hand of God and his protecting grace, there is nothing. And for us to ever think, well, that's, at least I'm sick. Be careful. Pride cometh before the, I use this line and I use it often and I've been using it for Really, almost since we were saved. I am never more than one poor decision away from devastating my life, destroying my family, and damaging the cause of the kingdom. One poor decision. And you show up next week and I'm gone. That's how easy it is. It's that simple. And all that is is simply thinking that we are something we are not. I will never fall in. I will never. I could never. You, I could never. There is nothing that we could never. Apart from God's sustaining, protecting grace. And if we don't see it that way, that's exactly what Satan is looking for. I want to show you this in Amos, because this should be a comfort Another one of these sovereignty passages that should comfort you. Ready? For I will give the command. I, I, I. This is God. I will give the command and I, God, will shake the people of Israel. God shaking his people violently, intensely. Among all the nations, his grain is shaken in a sieve and not, listen, not a pebble will reach the ground. you know what that means? You'll be shaken violently. You'll be stirred. But you won't be crushed under its weight. You will not fall away. Not a single pebble will fall to the ground. God is protecting you in the middle of your pain, which means there's purpose in your pain, and there's purpose in your suffering. As hard as that is to imagine in some of these circumstances, and many of you know them, you've lived them, you're still in them. Some things never go away. And remember, we don't understand all of this. We can't see the beginning from the end. We don't understand what God is up to. That's why we say that life has to be lived backwards. Don't some things that were happening a few years ago in your life make more sense today? It didn't make sense when you were in the middle of it. Why, God? What? I don't understand this. But they make more sense today. Whatever's going on, let's make this perfectly clear. We have to be careful. These are very, very sensitive issues. But there's nothing that doesn't happen to you that doesn't pass through his nail-scarred hands. God doesn't tempt you. 
but God is at work and we don't understand his work at times. We just don't. If you had a God you could understand, I've said it before, you, he wouldn't be God. And I'm not saying that that makes it any easier, because it doesn't at times. But it's true. How would you get to the other side of it if you didn't believe that? So God is in control. And then what do we learn from Peter? What, what did he know by way of personal experience? Let me, let me add this. He knows the stuff that you've been through, some of the stuff, whatever it is for all of you. Do you want to know one of the reasons? So that you can be used in the lives of others who are going through the exact same stuff. And you know what people who are going through stuff like that want to hear? Yeah, me too. Yeah. Me too. You are to comfort others with the comfort that you have been given. So what did Peter know? He writes it. He, he's telling you 2,000 years later. 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and of sober mind. You know what that means? Don't, don't overest overestimate yourself, thinking that you're stronger than you are. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I'm telling you from personal experience because he came after me time and time and time again. And there were times where I gave in. There were times where I, I did not stand up and my faith faltered, but I never fell fully because God was protecting me. So this is real. This is the reality of living in a fallen and broken world. Yes? Two. Here, here, here we go. This is us. You ready? But Peter replied in verse 33, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Now, this is a trick question, so don't answer it. Remember, you're being live streamed. Was that a true statement? It was to Peter. Did Peter believe that? Sure he believed it. You would too. I know you do. You've said it over and over again. Maybe not the exact same words, but we all say it. I won't deny you, Lord. I'll, I'll, I'll die for you. See, let me make something perfectly clear. It's a whole lot easier dying for a cause or for someone than it is for living for it. I think dying is easy. It's hard to live for. So he was ready. He even goes further. You know what he does? In Mark, you read Mark's account. He says, Lord, even if all these fall away. So, so he points out his brothers in the upper room and says, listen, they may be weak. I, I know them. They really are. But not me, Lord. They all will, if all of them fall, I won't. That's sinful pride. That is a self-confidence that we ought not to have. That's exactly what Satan is looking for. The person who says, I could never do that. I would never, ever, I can't believe you did that. I would never, now I deal with this stuff, but I would never. So what did, what, did, what did Peter do? Notice a couple things. What did he do? 
he isolated himself. Not only did he pull away from the Lord, so I'm going to show you what he should have said. He isolated himself from his other disciples. Even if they fall, he separates himself from the community. These guys might fall, but I won't. I'm not even part of this group. So he's the perfect target for Satan. He's living in intentional isolation. Are you? Saved? Individually. Yes? It's good. But what were you saved for? Community. Do you, do you realize your salvation really is not about you? A great benefits, nice to know where we're headed, great comfort. Your salvation has nothing to do with you. It's all about him and the community that he is building through you. That's why you're still here. He hadn't brought you home yet. You've got work to do. And what is that work? To expand his kingdom, to connect to his body, to build up the family of faith. The Bible is full of one another. Share one another's burdens. Do you do that? Love one another. Comfort one another. Do you do that? Do you let others enter into your life? You know, there was a time that people would say to me, I, I was moving in the direction of ministry, so I thought I was... People would ask, Pastor, how, how can we pray for you? No, I'm good. What an idiot I was. Well, let's pray for this guy and this guy. No, I'm good. I'm fine. Do you have any prayer requests? No, no, no requests. If you find yourself in an environment where you can't think of a request, best you make one up. Just to remind you there's something really wrong with you. I, I can't get enough prayer today. I ask for you to pray for me every week, every day. That God will hold me up. That I will be protected from the evil one. I used to think I didn't need that. Then I realized how Paul, pray for me, he says, pray for me. Pray for me. Paul needed prayer. I need a whole lot more. So this self-confidence is this, this takes us to James. We've all, we know the passage. We're familiar with it. Then I'll give you the line. Then we'll go to the third point, And then we'll close. And I promise you the close will be worth the price of admission. Not sure what you paid to get in, but it'll be worth the price of admission no matter what it was. Okay? See, not my business. Now listen, James said, listen, he's talking to you. Listen, you, you who say, today, tomorrow, we will go this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make some money. Eh, not, not a bad statement. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while. And then vanishes. And, and then here it comes. With, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Is that part of your, I need, really need to ask, is that part of your language? It used to trouble me early on as a brand new Christian. We got saved only in 95, the end of 95. And I'd hear these seasoned saints. They'd say, well, you know, can't wait till Friday and we'll, we'll get together for the weekend because we have these great, we'll, we'll be together if it's the Lord's will. And you should just, I, 
Enough of it's the Lord's will already. Enough. Oh, I'm a whole lot older and a little tiny bit wiser. If it's the Lord's will. You plan your vacation. Plan it if it's the Lord's will. You, you plan a weekend if, if it's the Lord's will. Tonight, we're, we if it's the Lord, that's the language you parents need to be teaching your children if it's the Lord's will. So that we can constantly be looking which way? One way. Straight up. If it's the Lord's will. So if Peter had understood that, then this is what he would have said. But he'll understand it later. Lord, if you will strengthen me, I am ready to go with you. I'll go to prison with you and to death. But only if you will strengthen me because I can't. There's no way I'm going to be able to do this. I know that my spirit is willing. I'm committed. I'm, I'm in. I want to go. He has foot and mouth disease. Anybody have that? Anybody have that? Or am I alone? Hit that foot. Boom. Right in the mouth. He's got it. He's always saying stuff he ought not to say. And you remember that one time, Lord, 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 far be it from you that you will ever die. And, and what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. What's the matter with you? Peter doesn't get it yet. He will, and that will bring us to our close. He will, but not yet. That's why this night was necessary and your night is necessary. Your testing is necessary. You must be tested. God is separating the wheat from the chaff. He's, 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 he's getting rid of all of that stuff that needs to go away. By any means necessary. We call him the great physician. Are you happy with a physician who's doing surgery on you? And you got some kind of a bad spot inside of one part of your body that needs to be cut out. And he's cutting away and he's cutting away. But he says, ah, it's a little bit there. That's, it. That's enough. Let's close it up. No, I want him to cut away every little bit of it and keep on cutting until it's all gone. Yeah, the cut is painful. And the recovery on the other side is going to take longer, but I want him cutting away all of it. I don't want the great physician to stop anywhere short. I want him to get rid of all of it. So we have to. He must increase, we must, and was Peter strengthened? Let's take a look. Number three. But I, here it is, I have prayed for you. Now this is singular. This is for Peter. Now he's prayed for all of them. He's praying for you now. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father making intercession. But now he's making it personal. This is singular. Peter, Satan has asked to sift all of you right now. You're too, right now, 2020, Satan's asked to sift you. Some of you are being sifted right now. But then he makes it personal. I prayed for you, Pete. I prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. And when you have turned, oh, don't miss this. When you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. What, 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 what did he just say? You can't turn back unless you turn away. I'm telling you you're turning away. I'm telling, because you're going to rely on your strength and not on mine, so you're going to turn away. But I'm telling you something else, you're coming back. Because I'm turning you back, 
And when you come back, now I want you to strengthen your brothers. Because now you will be fit for service. You're not ready tonight. You're not ready to go to prison. You're not ready. Because there's something that's going to have to happen in order to make you ready. And that's going to be this living hope we're going to see in a moment. Okay? So let's take a look at that word turn. It's important. Epistrepho is the word for repenting, for turning back to God. This is important. This is instructive. This, this, Peter goes outside the courtyard where Jesus was, had the trials and he walks across the court. And Peter is confronted by the slave girl and, and, and the other servant. And it says he goes outside the courtyard and he wept bitterly. In the Greek, it's telling us that he has repented. He is filled with what's called a godly sorrow. Do you understand? So the point is, when you turn away from Jesus, does it fill you with a godly sorrow? That's the question. Because if, if it doesn't, you need to check your heart. What's going on? When we break the heart of God, it should break our hearts. It should mean something. The rhythm of the, what is the rhythm of your redemption? It's a constant rhythm of what? You're, 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 you're living right. You rebel. You repent. And you're restored. And you're living right. And you rebel. And you repent. And you're restored. I've had people say to me, well, sure, I repented when I came to Christ. Do you know that there's a great reformer who said that even our prayers should be repented of? Do you know what that means? Everything we touch is stained with our sin. Everything. So we have this rhythm of repentance in our lives that should never go away. It, it, it can't go away. We know that God is faithful to forgive, but we have this rhythm of repentance. That takes place daily because we turn from God. So now, let's make something perfectly clear so that you're not deeply troubled by this and get confused. True saving faith is not demonstrated in sinlessness. Put that down somewhere. Do not forget that. It is not demonstrated in sinlessness. You will not be sinless until you get to the other side. True saving faith is demonstrated in turning back to the Savior. There it is. Do you turn back? Over and over, do you? You're His. Falling isn't failure unless you fail to get up. Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. It won't fail. He's made, that's the promise that you've been given. Once you're His, you're always His. So Satan wants you to question what you just did this past week, whatever it was, and wants you to question whether or not you're really his. Because if you were really his, you could not have done that. There's nothing you can't do. It's not what happens to you that makes the greatest difference in how your life works out. Listen to me carefully. It's not what you and what happens because of what you do that makes the difference in how your life works. It's what you do with what happens. What do you do with the mess that you've made? Do you take that back to him? 
Do you bring that to the foot of the cross? We're all messing it up. It's what you do with that that makes the difference in how your life works out. It tells your heart who you belong to. What does your heart beat for? Sure, we'd all love to live a sinless life, but we're not. That means we have to keep turning back and what? Trusting and depending. What did he say? We preached it a week or two ago. You have to be like the youngest. You have to be like children who do what? Keep coming back to their parents. Keep trusting and depending. And not on ourselves. A couple passages and we close. I have told you these things. Listen. So that in me you may have peace. But in the world you will have trouble. See the promise? But then what does he say? It doesn't leave you there. Can you imagine if that verse 33 ended at trouble? In the world you'll have trouble. See ya. Thanks. That's good news? No. The good news is, but take heart. I've overcome the world. The world's coming, but I already beat it. And you'll beat it in me. Not in you. You'll beat it in me. You'll overcome in me. Stay, stay with me. Stay connected to me. You're the branch. I'm the vine. Stay in me. I've already beat it. My prayer. Don't miss the prayer. John 17. My prayer. And this is the night he was betrayed, right? John 17, 13 through 17. The night he was betrayed. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, Father, but that you protect them from the evil one. Paniros, the Greek, the evil one. You're not out of the world. The only one I know that was taken out immediately was the good thief. The rest of us, we're in the mess. So what's the promise? Protection. Psalm 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. What, what's, what are those passages? What, what does all of Scripture tell us? What have you been promised? Not smooth sailing, but safe harbor. You've been promised the destination. Do you remember when Jesus is in the boat and the storm comes up and they're crying out, Lord, don't you care that, that we're going to perish? And he, the scripture tells us, now I'm adding a little bit of my own stuff, but I, I'm allowed to do that because I'm the pastor. He's asleep on a cushion, and I can only imagine this on the cushion. He's fully human. My wife says, I snore at night. I don't think I do. So she's taped me on the phone. She shows me I do. Sometimes it's bad. It's gotten better, especially when I'm on my back. I picture the Lord Jesus just, he's out. And there's a storm. And the water's coming over. What was their problem? They forgot how the journey started. How did the journey... How did you... They're on the shoreline and the journey starts with these words. Let's get into the boat and go to the other side. I didn't promise you smooth sailing across the lake. But I did promise you safe harbor. We're going to get there. Settle down. 
Understand the promise. It's hard. This is the world that we live in. But we're going to get to the other side. Here's the things that Peter did. And then we'll give the statement at the end and close. Did he strengthen his brothers? The book of Acts. I just hit a few points. He led in replacing Judas with Matthias. Matthias replaced Judas. Acts 1. He preached at Pentecost. How about 3,000 being saved that day? Was he strengthening his brothers? But he had to fall. He had to fall. But his faith did not fail. But he had to fall. To be strengthened in his faith. He heals a crippled beggar, Acts 3. Peter before the Sanhedrin, he could not stand before the Sanhedrin in his own strength. If he, could you imagine him saying, I, I, I'll stand before the Sanhedrin. No, you won't. But now he will. Because now he'll stand in, in, in somebody else's strength, not his own. The expansion of the church to Samaria, Acts 8. And then to the Gentiles, Acts 10. Jesus turns our mess, he turned Peter's mess into his masterpiece. Yes? So now you ask the question, okay, great. Great, great sermon. No, not really, right? It's okay. I didn't mean to say it that way, great sermon. Good word, but who cares? What does that have to do with me right now in the mess that I'm in? So he strengthened his brothers. Jesus didn't just tell him to strengthen those brothers and sisters. He told him to strengthen you as well. And I'm going to show you a passage in which he does that. In a way that should overwhelm you. And it is the passage that is the only real hope of those who go through unimaginable suffering. Ready? I'm going to give you something before the passage. Austrian doctor, psychiatrist, Holocaust survivor, Dr. Viktor Frankl. If you've never read Man's Search for Meaning, it's worth the read. He writes of his experience in the death camps in which he survived. He writes of transcendence. I'll give you his quote in a moment. But he remarks in his writings of his observations and what different people presented to him through these camps. And he came up really with four responses of people who were in the camps with him. The first one, in, in utter hopelessness, right? They knew what was going on. They knew the people that were being exterminated. So the first group just responded with brutality. There was no other way for them to get through the day. So they became like their captors, and they were brutal to everyone around them. That was the first category of people. The second, they simply gave up. At morning call, they didn't get out of bed. They came, and they beat him, and they didn't get up, and they didn't care. It was done. We're done. I had enough. The third had hope. But here's where the, what he noticed of their hope. Their hope was in what they once had. When this war is finally over and I get out, I'll, I'll get my family back that I had. I'll get my, my life back that I had. I'll get my work back that I had. I'll, I'll get my, my wealth back that I had. And, and, and those who survived got out and got nothing back. And they went into utter despondency. But then there was a tiny, smaller group that had a hope that transcended this world. It was wholly other. It was above and beyond. 
It was what we're going to show you in Peter as a living hope. And he saw it as being centered in God. And those people will be, were able to rise above the most unimaginable circumstances in life to actually get through it because of this living hope. You ready? Listen to what he writes. Super meaning is the idea that there is ultimate meaning in life. There is. There must be. Meaning that is not, listen, it's not dependent on someone else in your life. It's not dependent on your projects. It's not even dependent upon your dignity. All of that was stripped of them. It is a reference to God and spiritual meaning. Do you see that? Now we're going to go right to Peter. Ready? Here it is. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Pause. There it is. You want to minister to somebody? There it is. What? Peter's writing to you today. What, whatever it is that you're dealing with, and if you're not going through much now, give it more time. But he's writing to you today. And what is he saying? I'm telling you about something that I actually personally experienced. My hope died on Good Friday. My hope was nailed to a cross. It was over. I denied him. He was crucified, dead and buried, done. End of story. How can he possibly write about a living hope when his hope was dead? Resurrection of the body. Stay with me. Stay with me. Resurre Not a spiritual resurrection. He came out of the tomb bodily. Stay with me. From the dead. And into an inheritance that... Oh. He has an inheritance. You have an inheritance that can never perish. It can never spoil. It can never fade. Why? It is kept in heaven for you. It is kept in a place... You have a living hope that no circumstance that you will ever go through can touch. It is untouchable. Because it is kept for you in heaven. Imagine the parents and the families of those children who are gone. How do you get to the other side of it? If you don't have a hope that circumstances can't crush how it's impossible this is it and it even gets better who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation in this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while you may have had to suffer you may all kinds of trials but these have come so that your faith, what did he say? Your faith will not fail. Your faith will not, you will be tried, but your faith is not going to fail. You're going to need that faith of greater worth. Oh, your faith is greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. I have to pause right there and then we'll give you the final point. You see that last passage? I know what you're thinking. I do. Because I 
used to think that way when I read through the passage. This great faith that you have now is going to, it's going to be proved genuine and it's going to result in the praise and the glory and the honor of Jesus. No, no, that's not what it says in the original language. It's not what it says there. That praise is yours. That glory is yours. That honor is yours and it's coming from him. You will be tried and you will be tested. But you will come out the other side. And you will be praised and you will be honored. And you will be glorified because of it. That's the promise of the living hope. But what does the world tell us? The world gives us a message of utter hopelessness. We are floating around on some kind of speck of dust in a universe of utter meaninglessness. That's what the world tells us. If that's true, why do anything? Take a look at this picture. See if it says anything to you. It was 1845. Edgar Allan Poe wrote perhaps one of the greatest, if not certainly the most famous, American poems called The Raven. Some of you are thinking right now, but I'll give you just a couple lines because you remember them. You know them. You've heard them. They're implanted in your, in, deep in your mind. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary. Ah, distinctly I remember. It was the bleak December. He brings great symbolism into this poem. Midnight dreary. It's the end. It's, it's the end of, of a day. It's the end. It's coming to the end of something. December coming to the end. Perhaps New Year's Eve coming to the end of a year. It's speaking of an end. And in the poem, it's about this man who has lost his true love, Lenore. She's gone. And he is crushed under the weight of this loss. What's, what, is the, what is the one thing, the one thing that every human, every human heart beats for? The one thing. Love that will last. Yes, you know that that's true. Because you know what has happened to you when you have lost love. And you know that there's something radically wrong with that. You know that it was never intended to be that way. You know that love was intended to go on. Love that will last. This poem is about meaninglessness. The raven shows up and he asks the question, who are you? What is your name? And the raven says, nevermore. He finds it to be strange. So he begins to ask other questions along the way throughout the poem. And he asks of his love, Lenore, will, will I see her again? Nevermore. Will she be in paradise? Nevermore. Is there any bomb in Gilead? Nevermore. Will your shadow from my room one day be gone nevermore and he descends into utter insanity overwhelmed with grief that the love of his is gone and he will never ever ever experience it again it's over that's the wisdom of the world but i have something for you that will counter nevermore Forevermore. 
that love is not lost. Those parents have to know that they will be reunited one day with those children. And you know how I know that that's true? And how Peter knew? He came out of a grave physically and alive. He wasn't a spirit. You know, you have a couple options in religious worldviews. Because people say to me, well, Pastor, there are lots of promises in religious worldviews of afterlife. Sure there are. Yes, there are. There's a promise of an afterlife that you will simply live in some kind of supernatural, spiritual existence and everything will go back to the all and it will be impersonal and it will be all connected to some kind of supernatural force. You're good with that? That's what you're looking forward to? You can have that. You say, well, isn't there some others? Yeah, yeah, there's a promise of heaven. Let me give you that promise. That's called a consolation. And that's a spiritual existence where you are spiritually connected to whatever that paradise and that heaven is and, and, and you'll go on in eternity. You, you good with that? Not if you're standing over an open grave, you're not. But you have something that's greater than a consolation. You have a restoration. Because Jesus came out of the grave bodily. And he ate a fish. And they touched him and they handled him. And your bodies are coming back. The bodies of those children will be reunited with their spirits and their souls. And those parents will be able to hug them again. And kiss them again. And hold them again. That's the promise of the cross. And the empty tomb. Heaven is no consolation. For what you go through in this world. But a new heaven and a new earth. Is a restoration of all of it. And never more. Never gets the last word. He does. And he says forevermore. Forevermore, you will go on and on and on, and you will never, ever again lose love. That's the promise of the gospel. Without stretched arms and nail-scarred hands, Christ has come. Will you come to Christ? If you've never surrendered your life to Christ, come to Christ today. Trust in Christ alone. He is who He says He is. He did what He said He would do, and He did it for you. Come to Christ. is real every love that you've had that has been lost in Christ it's coming back let's pray Father thank you for the power of the gospel we have no words to thank you what it means to us to know that never more will never have the last word you have conquered death. You have defeated Satan. Sin has been nailed to the cross. No, we don't experience all of that today, but we know that promise is coming. We know that's the hope, the living hope that we have in you. Father, I pray right now for hearts that are utterly crushed under the weight of unimaginable pain and suffering. No words can minister, but you can. Wrap your loving arms and nail-scarred hands around those families that grieve unimaginable grief and brokenness today and remind them 
that forevermore is the final word. And one day soon, they will be reunited with their loved ones. And that is the promise that we have, the hope that we have in you. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Would you all stand with us? Thank you.